Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization which exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to talk about, among other things, the content of our weekly wrap-up piece, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by all of the regular and usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to talk about the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the privilege of sitting down and chatting with theologian, author, professor, podcaster, and friend, Jonathan Master. On the Mockingcast for the first time, Jonathan Master, who is Professor of Theology and Dean of the School of Divinity and Director of the Center for University of Studies at Cairn University, also the author of A Question of Consensus and the host of Theology on the Go, which is a podcast sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. You're also the executive editor of the online magazine Place for Truth. When do you sleep? Like, what? how how are you, like, tell me about, like, do you have hobbies? What are you doing for fun? I know you like Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, that was great. I I sort of binged watched that a few summers ago. Um, To tell you the truth, I really don't have hobbies. I I ought to have hobbies. My wife tells me that. Uh, if you were going to have a hobby, what would it be? Like, if you were if you if you were going to like delve into the world of hobbies, where would you go with it? Wow, I, I feel like I'm on the couch here. Um, boy, I don't know. I I I I don't have a really well prepared answer for that. I mean, I guess um, I, I I do I do enjoy doing certain things. I mean, I I do enjoy trying to hike as much as I can, uh, get out in the woods. I listen to music. I'm kind of into tweaking my stereo. Um, what kind of stereo do you that have? What are you stuff. tweaking? What are you tweaking? Well, um, right now my speakers are uh, Wilson Audio speakers, um, and uh, the the various components are of all different kinds of makes, and the, you know it, it gets down to the cables and everything. You, you, you don't want to waste your listeners' time with all that. Yeah, you've written uh, stuff on confessional theology. You have taught me. Full disclosure: we are friends. We've been colleagues. I've done some teaching at Karen. You've taught me to appreciate the Welsh Calvinist Methodist, right? It is. Well, that was, yeah. I mean, you picked right up on that, um, that title in my office. And, uh, you know, we've been talking Welsh Calvinist Methodism ever since, I think. I mean, who doesn't, really? Now, it's fair to say you're a guy that's got some background in confessional theology, especially confessional reform theology. Based on what you just told me, you're not huge on the Sabbatarian stuff, right? <laughs> Well, it, it, it all depends on how it's defined, I suppose. I, I like you're a, a, a man of uh, of careful measure theologically. So you wrote a book recent last year, 2015, right? Called "A Question of Consensus," which is not about current American political life or you know anything 21st century. Although it has some, I think, direct relevance to that. But it's actually about the question of the assurance of salvation as it played out post-Reformation, and how the Westminster Confession actually built on this understanding of, uh, you know, assurance of salvation coming out of the Reformation. Why did you write this book? Like, what is, why, why this 
book now? Yeah, I mean, for me, there were a couple reasons. One was I was interested in the in the topic of assurance. I, I I'm interested in pastoral theology in general, and um, and my area of study in my PhD work had been the 17th century, and so I was interested in 17th century pastoral theology, and obviously, assurance is a big part of that. But the second reason I think that was maybe more of a of a driving force was that. A lot of the discussion about the Westminster Confession and 17th century English Reformed theology has been about the differences between the first generation reformers and the 17th century scholastics, or however you refer to them. And what I thought was was really interesting was not so much that question, although although I do deal with that question in the book, but the question of what happened right after the Westminster Confession. And so... What I began to see when I looked into it was that on the doctrine of assurance, right after the confession, you had these streams that came out of the confession. So it wasn't as if these were thinkers or theologians who were uh, on a totally different page. They were all they all would have agreed with the Westminster Consensus, uh, but they immediately had to fill in its gaps in different ways, and they took it in different directions. And so it opens up all kinds of interesting questions, not just about assurance and how you approach that, but also about how confessions function and how the Westminster Confession in particular functions. So that's that's how I sort of got into it. Uh, it people talk about streams going into the Westminster Confession. Um, and what I wanted to explore a little bit uh, that hadn't been touched on quite so much were the streams that came out of it almost right away. Yeah, that's is it fair to say that today in theology the Westminster Confession is like Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. You just you're not neutral on it. You know, like, like you you probably either really like that tradition or you're really like averse to it. Like I mean, I feel like there are people that are incredible standard bearers for it and then there are people that really, you know, think it's a straitjacket. I mean, in some sense are you kind of trying to tease out like a, a more textured, nuanced approach to that confession and to confessionalism in general? So I, I haven't thought of it quite that way. I do think there's there's something to that in that part of what comes out of this, for me at least, is a broader understanding of how confessions function and what kind of space uh, can be found and, and often must be found within even some of the more detailed uh, confessions in the Reformed tradition. So, so I suppose that's part of it. That wasn't an animating force in the whole thing, but but I I think that is something that that comes out of it. But I would say in general, I, you know, you talked about different people feeling uh, pr- pretty strongly about the Westminster Confession, and and I would say that generally people feel really strongly about confessions in general. Either they either they think that these are great things that are really helpful for the life of the church and for the flourishing of theology, or they see them, as you said, as kind of straitjackets on our exegesis. I don't know that I would single out the Westminster Confession, uh, particularly in that regard, it, but the way that Westminster has been a flashpoint in the last 50 years is uh, is people have asked the question, ha- does Westminster uh, sort of codify a departure from uh, the first generation of the Reformers? 
So this is this is kind of the Calvin versus the Calvinist. Yeah, it's the Calvin versus right, the yeah. Calvinist thing. And and it, to some to a certain extent, that's that a lot of those questions have been answered. But that was that was one of the big uh, points of debate, and that was one of the big things you could see, particularly in the middle part of the 20th century, in terms of people's attitude towards Westminster in particular. Do you, now you teach at a, at a at an evangelical school where I, I'm I, where a lot of the students probably come from non-confessional backgrounds you, you know like you know you have this kind of free oh, yeah. church yeah. kind of evangelical impulse do you, so how does that how does your own passion for the confessional tradition like interact with your own academic life where students are kind of you know are probably you know are more like your kind of congregational conservative American Christians. Yeah, the place where it really comes out, I mean, it comes out obviously in personal conversations. I mean, you know the environment well enough to know that, uh, you know, we're talking to students all the time in the office, in the hallways. So, I mean, of course it comes out in those ways as students ask questions about church and and that kind of thing. But I think where it comes out in the classroom uh, most for me is in teaching church history. Because that's when students, I think, begin to look a little more objectively, not just about certain beliefs within their church tradition, but, and, you know, certain interpretations of the Bible or something like that, but actually begin to look at the tradition itself a little more uh, historically and objectively and, and sort of begin to contextualize it. So in the classroom, that's the place, it's the church history classes where I ha- where I see students really engaging with uh, traditions that are, are different from their own. Now, if you were, you know, you wrote a book on assurance, right? Which you wouldn't know from necessarily from the title, you know, question of consensus. So if you were going to, if you were going to make the popularized version of this, right, which was going to overtake the prayer of Jabez and anything Joel Osteen writes as the next big splash in evangelical Christian publishing, would you, maybe you call it something like, are you really, really, really saved and why you should care? Exclamation point. What would you say to people if you were going to, if you were going to frame your work on Thomas Goodwin, uh, Owen, John Owen, and Anthony Burgess? So if you were going to like ex- make a pitch for, are you really, really, really saved and why you should care? Exclamation point without using the Owen or Burgess or Goodwin, and you were just going to pitch it to your students in a popular form, how would you summarize what that book would be? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because I, I, I sort of avoid that, except in the, in the final chapter, uh, final part of the final chapter. I sort of avoid that in this book. Um, really what I'm trying to do here is something more descriptive. Um, but but um, what I say to students is I think that the Bible gives us a couple of different uh, ways of pursuing this. One is by looking at our lives, by looking at our uh, affections, our uh, actions, um, and and evaluating that. I don't think that's the primary uh, means of deriving your personal assurance, but 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 I think it's it is a biblical strand. I also think I think the primary biblical strand actually involves looking to the promises uh, of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Jesus says that the one who comes to me, I will not cast out and I will raise him up on the last day. So that kind of language to me is, 
extremely reassuring and powerful. So then, then the then the question you have to ask is, you know, am I trusting Jesus? And if I am, then then He has made certain promises to me that I can that I can bank on. So that's generally the path I go down. To be honest with you, um, again, this would vary from from situation to situation, church to church. The context in which I I serve and and spend most of my time is one in which it's not really a question people ask a whole lot. Certainly not nearly as much as it was being asked in the 17th century. So so I almost feel a, a little bit of a tug to push people to ask the question. And then I do think you know there are again, as I said, several several strands of argument that you could go down. Do you think that some of the reason why people aren't asking that question is contextual? You know, I was talking with a friend recently who we were talking about understanding of just the church's views on hell and people's eternal destiny. And we were thinking that, you know, he remarked that, you know, when the church is really persecuted, it's really, you know, it's got pretty concrete views, you know, on damnation. I think like in the early church, like the apocalypse of Peter, which is just horrific and pornographic at points with the details of like, you know, the, the wicked will have this happen and this happen. But, you know, the, but the empire is really being wicked to the church. You know, I mean, there, you can see the, 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 the desire for recompense, you know, that there's a sort of real firm interest there. And also in post-Constantinian times, like more, a more higher Christendom period, the middle, when the church's responsibility for social control, <laughs> you know, and so, but, you know, you look at like, you know, in certain parts parts of the patristic period, where people, you know, there's all sorts of views. You know, people argue that some people view the fate of, you know, the unredeemed as annihilation. Some people view hell as purgatorial. There's all kinds of different views. Do you think it's that way with assurance that people's, you know, that somehow sociological, in some ways, like how do you think social context, in particular our context, has changed the emphasis of anxiety and concern around, you know, am I really a Christian? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, at least materially, um, where we are situated uh, is Disneyland. I mean, it's, 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 um, in, it's, it's, it's relatively easy in comparison with some of the areas that you've you've identified. And I think that does play into it. I mean, if, if you hey, look- hey, Jonathan, look, you can't say Merry Christmas in Macy's. And one candidate is going to say, so let's not say we have it that easy because, you know, and we might be able to say Merry Christmas in, 20, in 2017. All right. Well, well so, so maybe it's a little less Disneyland than it was 20 years ago, right? Um, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> you're, we're entering a dark I, I, age. I am I, being slightly, there, there's a touch of uh, sarcasm. <laughs> No, I mean so, but in general, uh, it's we were fairly satisfied materially, um, and 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 so I think uh, that has a whole range of implications. I mean, even if you look at the the context of the the biblical literature itself, if you look at the places in the Bible where there's the greatest emphasis on, you know, uh, apocalyptic material, uh, eschatology, those kinds of things. You think about the the concentrations of apocalyptic material in the scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, and and these are times when there was great suffering. And so, and I think even in the history of uh, our, our own nation, if you look at the 
the great hymns about heaven. Uh, they came, you know, in many cases, they came out of slavery and, you know, the antebellum South, that kind of thing. So, so, so what, what that, what that suggests, I think is, is the kind of connection I, that your question is pointing to, which is we do begin to think less and less about issues after death, the issues of heaven and hell when, um, there at least seems to be the possibility of having heaven here on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Three, you know, Aldous Huxley said that what the world needs are, are more theological psychologists. And it's interesting because, you know, you, you highlight how, uh, the, the Burgess, uh, Owen, and uh, Goodwin all sort of have this gift in different measures, you know. And a lot of you know the great Reformation pastoral scholar types have this. Are we waning in that now? I mean, are, are, do you see? Do we need a recovery of part of the, the gift of this tradition of getting in people's uh, interior life and mapping out their own spiritual and religious psychology? I mean, do you think that that's? Or I mean, some people might argue that an excess of that leads to the kind of being lost you know, in your own inner labyrinth of navel-gazing. I mean, like, like, what role do you think, like, where are we in relationship yeah. to, that, to that tradition today? Do you think, like, we've moved forward or backward around creating theological psychologists? No, I think in general, we have far, far less depth in our theological analysis of the human condition, the individual human's conditions, um, than they did. Uh, that was actually... Going back to an earlier question, that was actually probably the first thing that drew me into the 17th century. It wasn't because I was trying to pursue academic research at the time. It was because I was in pastoral ministry at the time. And I was really looking uh, without an uh, an agenda uh, in terms of where I would find it, really looking for the kind kind of thing you've described. And and I found it in, in a lot of these 17th century figures. Now, you're right that that can have some negative effects as well. And 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 I I think I I tried to expose some of that even in in the book because it's definitely the case that with assurance the direction in which some of these writers are going is a very introspective kind of as you say navel gazing direction. And I think it it it's it manifestly led to some some things that weren't really healthy in in, the, in in some streams of the church, and even today aren't healthy in some streams of the church. So, so like anything, you you have to be aware of, of those kinds of pitfalls. But in general, I would agree with the premise that they were better physicians of the soul than we are today. Although that's speaking, of course, in broad brush strokes and. And 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 that wouldn't apply to obviously every individual pastor or tradition today. Yeah, it's interesting. Like maybe we're like because Nietzsche said, you know, and he's right. It, it, like it's it's just shocking the amount of things he was right about. But he said, you know, psychology would replace theology as the queen of the sciences. So in some ways, our discourse is soaked in psychological metaphors and discourse, but maybe just not theologically analyzed, you know, and energized. If you're in a liberal church or conservative church, there's just the abundant pop psychology just abounds. <laughs> like, 
right. as opposed to deep the- theological psychology. Right. And and I think that the so so I I, I take your point that the, there's a kind of a psychologizing that's more more prevalent today. I mean, I think the problem is of course that if you if you try to understand yourself or to make sense of someone else's impulses, desires, uh, actions, apart from an understanding of who God is, then I, I think you're going to make all kinds of mistakes and go down all kinds of false roads. So in other words, I don't, I don't think it works to study the, the human being apart from the fact that human beings are created in the image of God. Jonathan, thanks for coming on with us. And hey, do you want to say something about your podcast and where our listeners can go to check it out? Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned placefortruth.org, which is uh, an online magazine of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. You can stream theology on the go at placefortruth.org. But what would be even better and probably easier for your listeners is you can go to iTunes and uh, look up Theology on the Go, subscribe, listen. Um, we would love to hear from you, and you could be part of the conversation. Go write a review, too, if you like it. Yeah, them, that's true. Give them a review. That helps a lot. Yeah, no, that would be great. And yeah, I would say, yeah, I listened to a few episodes this week, and I would say definitely check it out. It's well worth your time to listen to. Jonathan, thanks a lot. May you have blessed assurance today and in all your days. Thanks, God. You got it all under control. You don't want somebody telling you the way to stay in someone's soul. You're a big boy now and you'll never let her go. But that's just the kind of thing she ought to know. Tell her about it. Tell her everything. All right, back. For the first time in a couple weeks, I mean, what we are doing, we've united, we've put the band back together, and we, I promise, are in the process of making this podcast great again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm here with David Zoll, the animating force of of the Zeitgeist, of Mockingbird Uh, Ministries. I I thought for a second it wasn't coming. From whom all mocking blessings flow. Oh, jeez. DZ in Virginia. Give me a break. Sarah Condon, the stars at night are big and bright. Are they not? They are. They are not in Houston because there's a there's a whole lot of city here. But I am told they're big and bright in other places. Other <laughs> places. I've seen some of them when we drove all around Texas to Tyler. I mean, that was a real education for me. Mm-hmm. Like driving from Houston to Tyler. I feel like I got, I got like I feel like a Texas immersion course. You did. You absolutely did. And a condon immersion course. Like, hey, we're, right. we're on a road trip. We go right to Target. We start at Target. We kind of, it's great. It's great. It's a chapel for my family. So we we pray there often. So thanks again for our listeners and their generosity and your support. And just, yeah, your words of encouragement. And it makes a huge difference. That being said, let's jump right into the contents of another week. And David, let me ask you this. Yes. Were your were your parents helicopter parents? My parents were not helicopter parents. No. I mean it's it's even funny to think of them in that framework because the the, the really the the term helicopter parenting has did not uh was it was just not used in the same way when I was growing up. But were, I, they, were they were they hang glider parents? <laughs> I mean they were very involved and I felt like they were there was they treated us uh, 
probably like adults earlier than maybe uh, I think their peers would have done with their own children. You know, this is all complicated for me because what we're talking about is the, um, this article that came out from Caitlin Flanagan, the writer who uh, in the Atlantic, how helicopter parenting can cause binge drinking. And it is, um, it's, it's documenting something that's really fascinating because I, and I ha- I have noticed this trend. Um, and it was, it was, it was always, it was, it was, uh, emerging when I was a, a youngster, uh, that, uh, the difference between the good parent and the, the f- get real parent when it comes to underage drinking, there's the sort of the good parents who don't want their kids to drink. And then there's the get real parents who want to want their parent, their kids to, to learn how to drink sort of under their own roof. So they, they host people and, you know, basically basement parties and people getting hammered. Uh, but while the parents are there and they, they feel like they're, 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 they're living within what teenagers are already going to do. Whereas like the good parent, um, says no, and maybe risks rebellion and kids leaving, you know, leaving the basement to go drink. I, I would, I wouldn't do that as a parent just because I don't like cleaning up vomit. I mean, it wouldn't be altruistic, <laughs> but it's just like, and like these kids are already a mess. They're not picking stuff up. Like, gosh, add on like all that, and, and then the, who knows what kind of bodily emissions and all that thing. That's just not happening under my roof. I'm sorry. Well, it, I, life yeah, life I is that. messy enough. I totally understand that. And like, there every time I read about this, it's someone they, they talk about someone cleaning up vomited off a sectional couch. I always that that's like a go to stock phrase for some reason. A sectional, because I guess everyone has sectionals, especially in their in their basement. Um, There's not just vomit on that sectional couch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Um, all right. Uh, hey, now the article really plums the into like what's going on on a number of levels, like between parents and how how much parents really, uh, you know, parents are basically always not only being judged but also judging, you know, the hell out of each other. And this is about sort of who's we all knew like a kid whose whose parents would say, oh well they'll they'll let you drink, you know, so you can go over there. Or they're the cool parents. And uh, you know, sometimes what Where were they in my town? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there were not. Well I don't know that I grew up in a town of ten thousand people in South Jersey. I don't know that there was a cool person in my town. <laughs> like, <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pittman, New, Jer- New Jersey. <laughs> Nothing we didn't already suspect, I guess. <laughs> I. Uh, it was funny to read this because I definitely had a lot of friends whose parents would let you drink at their house. Um, my parents were never, never, never about that. I grew up without any alcohol in the home at all. And um, so just just to name it not for any religious reasons actually but because um which is why most mississippians don't have alcohol because there's just so much alcoholism in our extended family and my parents just didn't want anything to do with it and i can remember um being at a party with some friends and and they'd had a lot to drink and then the plan was to go to my house and i was not a a big drinker in high school i hadn't i had not had anything that that night and so anyway, chef at my house and I'm really anxious to see my dad because I, and I said to him, you know, um, some, my friends are, and some of them are drunk. And I, and I remember thinking, you know, we never have alcohol in the house. There's a, a you know, a lot of difficulty around these issues of alcohol. Like what's he going to do? And he said, tell him to stay on the tile floor. Cause it'll be easier to clean up vomit. I'm going to go find some cookies 
So like, I don't think that my parents followed her necessarily the good parent or like the get real parent, but they're somewhere in between there. Cause I'll never forget him saying like, just get them in a place where it'll be easy to clean up the throw up. You know, like that's all I'm asking you to <laughs> Again, do. Again, vomit is like, is the chief concern. Clearly they you know, fall no. into the better, better person than me category. I know that it's inspiring. Well, this, this also, it really, it also, it, she's really talking about relationships between parents and kids and the, uh, there's there's less rebellion going on. I mean, there's still plenty of binge drinking going on, but there's less re- rebellion because, especially among sort of white professionals, which is where this binge drinking really is, um, for a variety of reasons, um, much more prevalent. Uh, but people don't detach, and that, I think that has a lot to do with technology as well as performanceism and having to kind of work together in order to get into any kind of college at this point. Uh, but you can't afford to, to detach from your parents. And so, so the drinking becomes another uh, release valve that can, and as well as something you can kind of do together. And uh, as Flanagan says that the, the research does not seem to uh, indicate that allowing student uh, kids to, get, you know, blotto uh, while you're upstairs has any effect on their ability to handle alcohol later. In fact, it might communicate to them a sort of a, she ends on on a pretty alarming note that it, that it communicates a kind of spiritual emptiness where they're in fact kind of living vicariously through you. And that, that that's about the, as, as far as it goes. She even ties in religion there. So I, I don't know what she was really reaching for at the end, but I do know that binge drinking, living in a college town, it's just, um, it's become cartoonish and um but it's not cartoonish because of what happens when people drink you know uh, so much when we when we talk about sexual assault that the uh you know you can't reduce it of course but so much of it is actually an alcohol issue and like we here here in 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 charlottesville at least that's um that's always downplayed in terms of what what's really going on so I don't know. I, I know that this helicopter parenting, it, it, it increases pressure in people's lives in a way that they are going to medicate in some form or another. And uh, they may not rebel, but they're going to rebel by needing to escape. And uh, that's just a different form of rebellion. Do you know, I think I'm not a parent, but I think the thing to do if the kids like hungover is what they do, what Chet does in weird science when, you know, the kids stumble in drunk in the kitchen in the morning and he says to Anthony Michael Hall's char- you know, character, who's like obviously pretty nauseous, he's like, hey, kid, how'd you like a greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray? <laughs> and he just throws up. I mean, that, you know, that's, it's a combination of the law and trauma. Look, man, come down here. You got down there, so what you want? I want bourbon, I want scotch, I want beer. Well, I ain't seen my baby since I don't know when. I've been drinking bourbon whiskey, scotch and gin. Gonna get high, man. Well, on to more, well, I'd say, but this is a very serious thing. So on to something also uh, serious, but I'm very touching. We there's a piece right, David, in the in the New Yorker on Martha Nussbaum. Yeah, Martha Nussbaum, the um, uh, moral philosopher, and uh, it's a really lengthy profile. It's fascinating and extremely well written. I I wasn't for that. I know Scott, you're 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 a fan. I wasn't that familiar with her, but um, 
this uh, great moral philosopher, Martha Nussbaum, and sort of taking go, going through her entire career and and the the glass ceiling aspect of it, but she kind of refuses to be. Um, you know, uh, contained by just her role as a woman here. I thought what, the, what attracted me actually to, um, her, her, uh, the profile was her talk about stoicism and her, her, her clear insistence that of, of what is beyond our control. But then she talks about anger. I guess she wrote a book about anger and forgiveness quite recently. Um, the art, the, 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 the passage that stuck out to me is Nussbaum argues against the idea dear to therapists and some feminists that people and women especially owe it to their self-respect to own, nourish, and publicly proclaim their anger. It is a, quote, magical fantasy, a bit of, quote, metaphysical nonsense, Nussbaum writes, to assume that anger will restore what was damaged. She believes that embedded in the emotion is the irrational wish that things will be made right if I inflict suffering. In other words, anger is a way that we seek to create the illusion of control uh, where we feel none. And that, to me, is... um, deeply incisive uh, it'll probably get her in a lot of trouble but um um i, I don't know we, we the, that somehow anger is is really um related to uh, control and but it's a terrible substitute for actual grief which is usually what it presages but it people can get stuck in the anger and i, I find that just to be very true to life and she even talks about in that profile that um one of the things she was responding to in her career was the um allegation that moral philosophers don't talk about actual life and so here she is. She's, she's, she's really reclaiming emotion, not just as sort of irrational forces that act upon a person, but that they're, they have a logic in and of themselves that we're uh, trying to incorporate. I, I, um, and now she's talking about aging too. Uh, that, that's another thing. Um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's, uh, there was, there was a lot there. It's a, it's a great long piece of a lot of great stuff, but, um, I was interested in the anger stuff. I found that to be very relatable. For me, that's one of the things about um, feminism uh, that I find most alarming. I mean, and and most, I have a hard time identifying with it sometimes for that reason. I mean, it's not unlike, and I hate to pull her out again, but it's not unlike the the whole Lena Dunham's father, you know, telling her that she needed to stop saying she was sorry. Um, It's, it's a very if if what we're if what we're really longing for is is and actually um, the Nussbaum am I saying that correct correctly mm-hmm. you are indeed yeah what she what she what she says at some point is what I'm calling for is a society of citizens who admit that they are needy and vulnerable um, I mean if that really is our goal then anger doesn't actually function for us at all so anyway I I thought it was fantastic yeah I'll tell you and again like I I have it. Like I'm not like a newspaper expert or anything. I'm just familiar with her work. I, and quite honestly, the first reaction I had to the piece was the portrait of her, the, the photograph, and she is just a a beautiful woman. Like I mean, and she talks about in the piece how it's harder to rejoice in her own fragility and her physicality as she ages. But like as I saw her, what do they say? You know, this is it's the Dorian Gray thing. You know, you get you you get the face your soul deserves, which is you know the tyranny of the law. And thank God that's actually not true. But thank God most of us get you know, at least a little better than we deserve, <laughs> uh, including, especially, of course, me. But this portrait of her in the piece is beautiful. And, you know, like she's barefoot and she has large feet. You know, like she's she has the, like, 
but they're lovely. I mean, the whole portrait of her kind of in a living room, it, like it's just lovely. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I admire her. Cause again, I think that philosophers, it's one of the reasons why I think, you know, Nietzsche is my favorite philosophers that, you know, philosophers that are writing about the human condition and attempting something like thick description more than prescription, you know, that they're trying to paint a picture that becomes a mirror. And mm. I think Nussbaum was just great at that. And I wanted to share something that David, your father, the one, the only PZ says on the January 28th entry of the Mockingbird devotional. I recommend we express our anger at God. He can take it. He is in the business of absorbing it. No one does it better. Jeremiah expresses anger at God. Paul expressed it in a plaint concerning his thorn in the flesh. Jesus almost did it, but not quite. Rather, Christ expressed his dereliction to the Father. Try it for a second. Stop blaming the SOB ruining your life. and Instead, blame God, who by definition must be pulling the strings. It will be for your good to have done so. I don't, I don't expect anyone to pick up on that until afterward. Parentheses, Edith Warden. The one, the only, PZ. But I like to keep some things to myself. I like to keep my issues strong. It's always darkest before the Let's talk about something we never talk about in our culture. It's it's undercovered. It's under-discussed. It's just, you Google search it, it's really tough to get kind of meaningful and substantive hits. Narcissism. <laughs> Narcissism. Yeah, the, um, we, we had a couple of things that I th- were highlighting. Um, there's a new... Uh, I, the NPR that brain uh, podcast has, has a great long interview with Gene uh, Twenge um, who talks a lot about the narcissism epidemic and uh, you're right. It is very fashionable. It is very fashionable. But the thing that I found more interesting was the review in the New York times of the new book called the selfishness of others, an essay on the fear of narcissism by Kristen Dombeck. Scott, you got to try to get, get her on the cast. She sounds uh, Absolutely uh, fascinating. Where, um, Kristen, if by chance you're listening, we will have you on. Yes, <laughs> we know you're out there. Um, so she's she's trying to warn us not just not about narcissism, but the fear of narcissism that in fact perhaps we've over over prescribed narcissism, and that in fact um, she sort of she suggests that the people who are Talking so much about narcissism, they betray a sort of insecurity, uh, uh, like, or people who are in relationships with quote unquote narcissists, what they really want is just more attention from the people they're in the uh, relationship with. It's, uh, I don't know if it will. It sounds like it's really well written, so who knows? But she, she says a couple things here that, um, 
that it's just as if there's one thing a girl with a bad boyfriend has, it's the moral upper hand and the religion of mental health. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that in fact, that she talks about these like, uh, you know, recovery groups online, like Reddit, subreddits about, uh, you know, I'm in a relationship with a narcissist. And, and a lot of what it, it, it sounds like it boils down to is um, they shouldn't be so focused on themselves. What they should be focused on is me. <laughs> like, and so that maybe it's, uh, it's a bunch of the fear of narcissism or the response to narcissism is actually betraying a level of narcissism that we don't want to confront. Um, in which case, could it be that we're all just raging narcissists and that the, the term will completely lose meaning? I don't know, but um takes one to know one, I guess. Right, right guys? <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. I was looking at my Instagram. And my, and I, I, I had three new Twitter followers. So I was, what were we talking about? Yeah, I thought uh, I thought I thought this it 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 hit a, a button in me for sure because um I think as a person who like uses social media and is and writes and talks and does these things, um, you know, I think there's that is that there's a fear there about narcissism um, because culturally, I mean, it's pretty encouraged. Like at you know at every level, um, you know, we laud and magnify those who aren't on social media now because maybe they're not as narcissistic as we are. And um, yeah, it's it's. I thought it was a great piece. <laughs> How about at the end? She says only one person can be the center of another person's world at any given time, and ideally, this would always be you. This is where all the narcissistic romance websites invite you to be in the center of the world, stuck in time, assessing the moral status of others until love is gone. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's heavy. But, um, I don't know. I, uh, I think that the t- talk about narcissism is, is absolutely necessary and fascinating and certainly something with which I struggle. And I know we all do, but, um, yeah, this, this, this is sort of trying to find the layer underneath the narcissism is, um, I think, I think a worthy task. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The subject of narcissism makes me angry just to name it, especially take it to God, take it to God, take it to God. <laughs> the, the NPR interview, um, with the psychologist, Jean Twange, I think I, I, I don't know how to say it. Yeah. French. Um, yeah, just because like, and I understand there's stats to back it up, so I have no reason to be angry, but that there is this whole thing about millennials being like the most narcissistic generation ever. And I kind of just want to be like, dude, you made us this way. Like, why are you writing about it? Like, I just, I don't know. There's this thing that kind of hits me um, every time I see that, that I get pretty defensive. Also, like, just to name it, like, Baby boomers are pretty narcissistic, so I, I, you know, I, I can only take so much of that. Um, anyway, but maybe I'm saying this because I'm a narcissist, so who knows? <laughs> you, know, you know, generationally, if the shoe fits that. I, I, there was a passage in the review I loved. It. Do you worry you are surrounded by fake? Empty people who are trying to manipulate you. Do you believe you should associate only with others with high empathy scores? Do you require excessive reassurance that other people, especially when encountered online, are real? If so, you may have narcophobia. And I want to read that in like that line, that voice that comes out. That I, I would love to be the person that does those voiceovers and political ads like two weeks before for the uninformed swing voter. It's like, did you know? That Mitt Romney eats 
puts his finger in the peanut butter jar, eats from the crunchy <laughs> chip, and puts it right back without telling anybody, do you want that man answering the call at 3 a.m.? Do you know Barack Obama once passed wind on his own hand and smelled it? Slick? You know, I mean, they can say slick, you know, they can say, but like you could imagine that kind of that voice like with us. But you know, for some reason, it it took me back to the 19th century in Princeton. There's a guy, Fred Zaspel, who wrote a book called The Theology of B.B. Warfield, The Systematic Summary. I think it was early 2010. But it was interesting. He wrote a piece in Banner of Truth magazine a couple years ago saying that the biggest inquiries about Warfield after he wrote the book were about his Warfield's wife. And apparently, you know, shortly after they got married, and she was a brilliant woman by all personal accounts, maybe, you know, it's interesting, mental health is is a, a different state now than it was then, but shortly after they were married, they went to Germany. Is what do you do if you're an academic, but honeymoon in Germany? And they were caught in a, a, a lightning thunderstorm, and it really had an effect on her. And it, it, historically, you know, there's all sorts of different accounts of this. You, you know, lots of the people that in and out of Princeton had windows on this. And Princeton at the time, and this is the cathedral of of theology, Protestant theology, you know, in, in, in North America. So this is, you know, a, a pretty big center in American religious life. But Warfield, all these people remember Warfield just never leaving her side, her becoming increasingly reclusive, and that she was like an invalid. Uh, and again, this the the guy who's written this written this book says, you know, there's different accounts or just how debilitated she was. But it, I mean, Warfield never left her side for more than a couple hours, never took speaking gigs. And one of the things that is clear is that they had a, a, a lovely marriage. I mean, even though she was a person that people didn't talk with much or, or yeah, interact with much. So um, I think about this story a lot. And I think about like most of the time, way we spend our lives is avoiding difficult people, people that will problematize us. You know, and I wonder, like, if B.B. Warfield or any of us on the first or second date would have seen the restrictions on his life if he would have gone on the third date, which he knew would end, would really, like, I mean, there'd be beautiful moments, but it would really severely limit his life. And I think about the fact that that is the perspective of God as he looked at the whore that he would make a bride that's all of us. You know, Karl Barth says that election is the fundamental good news of the gospel, that before eternity, God chose to be God in no other way than God with and for us, that there's no eternal son that's not eternally determined to be the son of Mary and brother of us. We're all wacky and narcissistic, (laughs) and the good news of the gospel is that, like, in the grocery store, when we see the person that's a narcissistic annoyance and irritant and we spend more time than one can ever imagine possible reading the contents of a cereal box to avoid their gaze. Like that's when God turns toward us and says, you're mine and (laughs) I am yours. So the good news is that God doesn't hate narcissists as much as we do. That is the good news. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh, God. Thanks again, everybody. Another week ends and so does another mocking cast. And I will see you all next week. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, 
please drop by iTunes and give it a rating and maybe even a review, hopefully a favorable one, or pass it along to a friend. We exist because of the generosity and enthusiasm of you, our listeners and readers. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.